Maryland Congressman and Democratic presidential candidate John Delaney is one of the only members of Congress to have had an initial public offering on Wall Street. And in fact, he's the only member to have had two. John uses the context of his business background to opine on the role of business in the Democratic Party platform. Because I have spent my career in the private sector, um, I believe in the power of the private economy. I think that uh, the private economy of the United States has been an amazing kind of innovation machine and has not only kind of changed the trajectory of this country as compared to any other country in the world, but it has made us more prosperous, has made us safer. It largely employs the overwhelming majority of people in this country. It has allowed this country to be the leader in innovation. And, uh, you know, so I think about a concept of where the government sector and the private sector work more closely together as opposed to being at odds with each other. I think it's a very big mistake for the Democratic Party to present itself as, quote, anti-business. It should be saying, which I do, that we want to make capitalism more just and inclusive. But the key there is we don't want to replace capitalism with anything else. At least I don't. There's no better form of an economic model than capitalism. But I do think it should be more just and inclusive. And as John Delaney believes that capitalism should be more just and inclusive, so too does he believe that the Democratic Party can and should be more just and inclusive. But, John Delaney says, partisanship itself may be at the root of the problem. And there is no clearer evidence of partisan malfeasance than gerrymandering. Representative democracy is broken because of gerrymandering. Now, gerrymandering is a subset of hyperpartisan politics. In my opinion, hyperpartisan politics has done something very terrible to this country, which is to divide us mm-hmm. and, and forced uh, our elected officials to really put party ahead of country. Mm-hmm. And that's the central question we face as a nation. Are we going to actually change direction on that? Because all the other issues we have in this country are all subsets of that issue at its core, which doesn't mean we shouldn't have partisan politics, mm-hmm. right? We need a debate in this country. That's why we have a democracy. People kind of look at the world kind of fundamentally differently. Some look at the, the in a conservative way. Some look at it in a progressive way. And each side has merit. And across time, we've seen that each side has been right about things. But, but there has to be a point in time where you say, that's enough of politics. Let's focus on some of the things we agree with each other on, and let's get those things done. Then we can come back to the debate. Stay tuned for more from Congressman John Delaney as we come back to the debate in just a moment. Hello, and welcome to Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we have been interviewing politicians, activists, advocates, and others since 2016 with the intention of ennobling public service, creating a platform for positive civil discourse, and facilitating dialogue with difference. This show is the antidote for those who are tired of hearing about what's going wrong with the world. We showcase people just like you who are working to leave the world better than they found it. And that's good news. And now a word from former President John F. Kennedy with his views on public service. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I'll remind you that this show is made possible by viewers like you. If you appreciate what we're doing here at Public Interest Podcast and enjoy this episode, please contribute $1 at publicinterestpodcast.com. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. 
We're here today with Congressman John Delaney, who represents Maryland's 6th Congressional District as a Democrat. He's a Democratic candidate for President of the United States and is a founder of Capital Source, which had an initial public offering in 2003, and a founder of Healthcare Financial Partners, which had an initial public offering in 1996, both three years after they were originally founded. John, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing? I'm good. Nice to be here with you, Jordan. Pleasure to have you. So the first question I'd like to pose to you is, what are you currently doing or what have you ever done to advance the public interest and why? To advance, Well, serving in the Congress of the United States has been a big effort of mine to advance the public interest. You know, my decision to get involved in um, elected office, which was really a decision my wife and I made together in 2011, even though we started thinking about it way before that, was largely based on um, an extension of the community service and philanthropic work we had been doing for well over a decade, which was um, obviously very rewarding and we think impactful. And it involved a range of activities, um, mostly focused on education, healthcare, at-risk youths. Um, you specifically asked about public interest. One of the things we created was at the Georgetown Law Center, the, the Center for Public Interest Law, mm-hmm. which provides scholarship and funding uh, not only to, to professors, but importantly to students. So they, they have the financial flexibility to pursue a career in public interest because it was our judgment that if you launch one public interest lawyer into the world, you'll downstream affect maybe 10,000 lives. And uh, so running for office, uh, which, you know, I obviously did for the first time kind of end of 2011, 2012 in terms of when we made the decision and I was elected in 2012 and was sworn into Congress in 2013, that's been kind of obviously the most direct um, effort I've made personally to, to make a difference towards the common good and serve the public interest. I'd like to speak about your decision leading up to that race, actually. At that time, uh, Congressman Ro- or sorry. State Senator from District 15, Rob Garagiola, was rather anointed, having been uh, endorsed by almost every single member of the Democratic Party establishment. Many would say that President of the Senate Mike Miller and Speaker of the House Mike Bush and Governor Martin O'Malley specifically drew the 6th Congressional District out from underneath Republican Congressman Roscoe Bartlett in order to get Rob Garagiola into the U.S. House of Representatives. What went through your mind running into that race, knowing how much the establishment was supporting him and against you? So, Jordan, one of the the nice things about being new to politics is I actually wasn't all that familiar with all of that which you just described. Obviously, it became very clear to me what had happened as I got close to the race. And now in the fullness of time, I think the extent of the gerrymandering that went on in the district is pretty uh, significant. Even, I think, uh, Martin O'Malley admitted in a, in a deposition, and the reason I'm familiar with this because there's still ongoing lawsuits involving my district, he admitted in a deposition that they did it for political reasons. So it's pretty clear, and uh, it's very insidious, actually, which is one of the reasons I've taken up gerrymandering as one of my issues in the Congress and have the lead legislation in the Congress to end gerrymandering, which I think is just uh, terribly bending our democracy away from the, the, um, what the people want. That's so fascinating that you are a congressman representing a gerrymandered district, that you oppose a concept of gerrymandering. Yes. And so I guess... So, so part of it is I didn't really... I hadn't focused on it. So when I... The first time I looked at running for office was actually back in, I guess it was 2006, when Ben Cardin was elected and there was an open Senate seat. And I was running my business. April and I had always thought about our lives in terms of like a third learning, a third earning, and a third serving. 
that's kind of how we framed our lives to some extent. And um, we were kind of getting close to that point where we said, you know, we really want to go deeper into public service. We've done community service. We've done philanthropic work. But, you know, we, we should take the next step if we really want to have the kind of meaningful life that we want for ourselves. And uh, so I looked at this uh, 06, actually, and um, obviously didn't do it. That's the uh, seat that the great Ben Cardin, who's a really great friend of mine, uh, now occupies. And uh, we looked at it kind of <clears throat> briefly and realized it wasn't probably the right time in our lives. But that probably sparked the interest because, you know, you, 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 when you consider something, you, you start kind of focusing on what could come from it. Come from it. And then uh, when this seat came up, I was following what was going on with the uh, redistricting because it happens obviously all around this country every 10 years. And uh, it was funny, the first map that came out had me and had Doug Duncan in the district. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, for our listeners who don't know, was a former county executive and a one time candidate for governor. That's right. And well known. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, And and I think well liked. I mean, I'm a big fan of Doug Duncan's. But anyway, um, so, you know, I kind of naively just inquired Mm -hmm. like any citizen would about the map Mm -hmm. because I looked at it online. I remember this. I remember looking at it on my computer and I couldn't quite follow the boundaries exactly. And I called into the the thing and uh, they asked, you know, why I was asking. And I said, you know, I'm thinking about running, and I want to kind of understand how this works, make sure I'm in the district. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, they sent, they sent me a more detailed map. And then the next draft of the map comes out, and I'm notched out of the district. Like, a little my neighborhood is actually notched out of the district. Mm-hmm. And it's funny, and I knew Doug Duncan. Mm-hmm. And so he and I got together, and he said, you know, he was notched out of the district, too, in the second iteration of the map, after he had expressed an interest in running. So not only did they gerrymander the district for one person, when they heard people were actually looking at getting in the race, they were actively doing things. But what they didn't do is read kind of the, uh, the, the uh, Maryland Constitution, actually, right, which doesn't require you to live in your district. Uh-huh. And so I actually live a block out of my district. Um, you know, we shop in our district. We go to church in our district. Uh-huh. We do all these things. But I'm technically a block out of the district. And uh, so it didn't deter me from running, obviously. Um, but uh, that's when it, and when I ran, part of it was Chris Van Hollen had represented a big part of what is now my district. And Chris Van Hollen was a great member of Congress. He's a great U.S. senator. People liked him. And so not only were the kind of Republican-oriented voters in Western Maryland feeling like they were gerrymandered out of their district, mm-hmm. but to some extent, people in Montgomery County were feeling it, too, because they were like, we like our member of Congress. Right. <laughs> we don't want a new one. Right. And uh, so I, I, I made a commitment to, to, to my constituents when I was, you know, running that, you're right, this is bad. I have nothing to do with it. And it's done. Mm-hmm. So I'm not going to, like, on principle, not run for the seat. But I made a commitment to them to actually try to do something against this. So, John, on this topic, many would say that the leaders of the Democratic Party in Maryland put uh, the the interests of the Democratic Party in the short term over the public interest, which is to say they prioritize putting an extra Democratic member uh, in a Maryland delegation to the U.S. Congress over really enfranchising the electorate. Now, in your presidential campaign, you've been quoted as saying that in your campaign, the villain quote, my villain is partisan politics, unquote. Can you speak about your experience uh, with uh, the Democratic Party potentially placing their interest over the public interest and how you're leveraging that in your own presidential campaign? So let's get back to the point that you started with in that question about what happened in Maryland. Look, at my point of gerrymandering is both parties do it. They do it all over the country. 
and we need to end it everywhere, mm-hmm. right? It's very hard for one party to kind of uh, disarm on its own, if you will, as it relates to this. So the, when Republicans control states, they do it. When Democrats control states, they do it. We shouldn't let any of them do it. Would you we support Maryland so-called unilaterally disarm? You know, listen, as someone who thinks gerrymandering should go away, I support any effort, right? But what I really think should happen mm-hmm. is we should do it across the country, which is what my legislation does. And what right. sort of likelihood does it have of passing? Well, I think, you know, I think I'm going to be the next president of the United States, and one of the issues I'm running on is gerrymandering. And my opinion is once the American people actually understand this, mm-hmm. and they really focus on this, no one likes this system. And I think if you run for president with this being one of your core issues, I think you have a mandate and you can actually um, put the American people in a position that, that they demand their members of Congress do something about it. I mean, Justice Scalia, the late Justice Scalia, who wasn't known for his broad interpretations of the U.S. Constitution, to, just to be clear here, <laughs> he said in an opinion mm-hmm. that under the Elections Clause of the Constitution, the Congress can actually determine the rules of the road for, for drawing congressional districts. They can't draw them, of mm-hmm. course, uh, but they can do it. So it's very clear that the Congress could pass a law, it would be constitutional, and it would require states to use independent commissions, like many states do. California does now, Iowa does, where I'm spending a lot of time. And so that, to me, is a big issue. And, and just to give you one other example about it, DACA, which is something that's obviously very relevant now, which is the uh, what we do with this DACA program that the president uh, very unfortunately uh, said he was going to terminate. And for our listeners, that rega- is with regards to undocumented immigrants. That's right. It's well, that the, the Dreamers, the, yeah. the, the, the they were brought here as children, not on their own decision. They came with their parents, and now they're in this country, mm-hmm. and they're paying taxes and doing things like that. And many of them are young adults, and this provided them with temporary kind of legal status. So 87% of the American people believe that DACA Mm -hmm. should be the law of the land. Mm -hmm. 80% of Republicans and something like 95% of Democrats. Mm -hmm. So this is like not even a close call. Like everyone thinks this should be the law of the land. Not everyone, but 87%. 80% of Republicans. But if you look at the House of Representatives Mm -hmm. and how how it's gerrymandered, you'd never know that. Because 87% of the House of Representatives does not think that it should be... um, that DACA should be the law of land, which is why we're not acting on it. And it shows how gerrymandering is basically causing the body in the Congress, which, which was supposed to actually represent the true will of the people, mm-hmm. it's almost like a referendum of the people, is not doing that anymore. And, you and that's that a constitutional issue. Regulation, and you also Everything. have that with infrastructure. Because people say, well, everyone wants to do this. Why don't you do it? Yeah. And it's because the House of Representatives does not represent the American people. Representative democracy is broken. Because of gerrymandering. Now, gerrymandering is a subset of hyperpartisan politics, right? right. So, I, I do uh, what you, your real question was about: How does hyperpartisan politics? My opinion: Hyperpartisan politics has done something very terrible to this country, which is to divide us mm-hmm. and and forced uh, our elected officials to really put party ahead of country. Mm-hmm. And that's the central question we face as a nation: Are we going to actually change direction on that? Because all the other issues we have in this country are all subsets of that issue at its core which is people would rather do when Mitch McConnell said we're not going to let Obama do anything. That was hyper-partisan politics, kind of taking over his body and making him say that, right? And you go down the list, and and I can say it when Democrats do it, I can say it when Republicans do it. So um, it's a big part of my campaign, which doesn't mean we shouldn't have partisan politics, mm-hmm. right? We need a debate in this country. That's why we have a democracy. 
people kind of look at the world kind of fundamentally differently. Some look at it in a conservative way. Some look at it in a progressive way. And each side has merit. And across time, we've seen that each side has been right about things. But, but there has to be a point in time where you say, that's enough of politics. Let's focus on some of the things we agree with each other on. And let's get those things done. Then we can go back to the debate. If you think about it like 10 hours in a day, uh-huh. you'd want at least five hours to be about things we agree with each other <laughs> on and five hours to be maybe just trying to change people's minds on issues we don't agree with each other on. Now it's like 10 of the 10 is, is all partisan politics. So does the gridlock, has the gridlock in Congress in any way influenced your decision not to run for re-election no. and run for president as a sitting member of Congress? No. The reason I, I, I'm running for president um, and not seeking re-election for my seat is, is twofold. One is practical, and then one, I think, is, is a question of, of kind of proper uh, stewardship for, for what this wonderful role I've been entrusted in. So the political decision was, for someone like me, who I think is the right person for the job, for, and I have the right vision, but I'm not well-known enough. So the only way I can solve that problem is to get in really early. Mm-hmm. And I just don't think it's right to go to my constituents and say, I'm, I'm running for president. And, uh, but I want you to elect me one more time mm-hmm. because you know what my long-term object- goals are, which is to actually be the president. But the second thing, in 2019, which is going to be an intensely busy year for all the candidates running for president, I don't think you can do your job in Congress and run for president at the same time as a practical matter. Or let's put it this way. If you do your job in Congress, you put yourself in a position when you can, where you cannot successfully run for president. I don't want to be one of those candidates on stage having to defend missing half of my votes. A, because that's an awkward thing to do, but B, if I were being honest with myself and I was on that stage, I'd say, you're right, I'm not doing my job, and I don't want to be in that position. Noble and honorable, to be sure. You spoke about spending five hours a day actually getting stuff done that is in accord with the will of the American people. Yes. Or uh, half. I use ten hours as a well, one of your, working day. One of your hallmark uh, ambitions in the, in the uh, House of Representatives, which... To date, you've been unsuccessful in passing into law, but have been successful based on very many other metrics, is the Partnership to Build America Act, uh, which addresses a uh, 700, which would appropriate $750 billion uh, in funds, with, well, actually without a, well, can I allow yeah. you to yeah, explain sure. what this so, is? So, and it's got two versions, but really put simply is we proposed a very, very large scale infrastructure program, yeah. over a trillion dollars, and we proposed funding that by fixing the international tax system, Mm -hmm. which has been a very bad system for a long time, and it's effectively encouraged companies to keep money overseas, Mm -hmm. trillions of dollars. And that has been hurting our country because it'd be much better to have that money back in the United States. And and more significantly is we we haven't been earning any tax revenues on the overseas earnings because the way the tax system worked is it said if you kept your earnings overseas, you didn't have to pay tax on them. Mm -hmm. So I said this is a bad system. We should get that money back, and we should start getting tax on that money. So I proposed pairing that up with infrastructure. And the reason that made sense is if you want to spend a lot of money on infrastructure and you care about the fiscal condition of the country, you ought to figure out a way to pay for it. And there's two ways of paying for it, either cutting other programs or finding new sources of revenues. Mm -hmm. And my view is let's find new sources of revenues. So that was my deal, very bipartisan, 40 Democrats, 40 Republicans. And Barack Obama mentioned it in his State of the Union address. Absolutely. And, you know, President Trump mentioned it when he was running for Congress. Rand Paul mentioned it when he was, I mean, when he was running for president. Rand Paul mentioned it when he was running for president. So people kind of got wind of this idea, and most people thought it was a great bipartisan deal. If you get 40 Democrats, 40 Republicans. I had, by the way, the head of the Freedom Caucus on the bill, 
and I had uh, the head of the Progressive Caucus on the board. How could it not get through? Well, leadership, you know, the, the, this is where I want, I'm going to blame the Republicans on. The Republicans wanted to use the fix of the international tax system that I just described, which everyone knew would generate a bunch of revenues. They didn't want to use it for infrastructure. They wanted to use it for cutting taxes. So it wasn't just that you were a Democrat no. and they wanted to deny a Democrat a victory. Yeah, it was based, It was really their ideology around tax cuts. And, and unfortunately, in this last tax reform bill, which I did not support, they did fix the international tax system almost exactly the same way I proposed. But again, disappointingly, instead of taking the money and doing infrastructure, they use that money to, to, to help pay for their tax cuts. And so what I like to say to people, wouldn't it have been better if coming out of this uh, tax reform bill, instead of taking the corporate tax rate from 35 to 21, which is what they did, if they would have taken the corporate tax rate from 35 to 25, and by the way, the business community for 10 years lobbied for a 25% corporate tax rate. They didn't lobby for a 21. They lobbied for 25. That's the number they said they needed. Mm -hmm. And if they would have taken it to 25 instead of 21, they would have had $400 billion of money they could have put into infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And with the way you get leverage and all kinds of things, that would have been a trillion and a half dollar easy infrastructure program. Instead, we have the president proposing an infrastructure program now, which what he's doing is cutting other infrastructure funding to pay for his infrastructure program. And my view is we don't need the same amount of money in infrastructure just moved around like a shell game. We need more money in infrastructure. So that's what happened there. So one part of uh, the uh, American Infrastructure Fund, which was specified in the Partnership to Build America Act, was that this fund would invest in, uh, in securities. And I'm wondering if those investments in securities would po pose a risk to corporate bondholders or to local and state governments who would have purchased those bonds, for instance, if the market were to crash. No, because the, the way it was really structured, the original deal that you're referencing, the Partnership to Build America Act, what we basically said to companies, buy these bonds, these really low-rate bonds mm -hmm. that you would never buy, and in exchange for buying those bonds, we'll give you the ability to bring some of your money back from overseas. That was the original deal. Mm -hmm. So it really didn't intend for um, local governments or any of that stuff to buy these bonds. It was only companies that had the money overseas. Sure. Okay, and then it evolved into the infrastructure 2.0. Yeah, which is the, what I really described when I talked about the bill. And that's the 8.75% tax on yes. U.S. multinational. And that's all the stuff that they put in this tax bill. Okay. So, uh, and it sounds like these bills that you propose that have not passed, um, or perhaps some elements have passed yeah. in it, um, are really kind of uh, have originated with uh, your two companies, Capital Source and Healthcare Financial, where you're really playing the part in your private sector career as a banker, uh, would you say that the ideas somewhat came from your own banking experience? Well, um, so what my two companies did is we, each of the companies, the first one focused on healthcare only and the second one more broadly, we provided loans to small to mid-sized businesses. So we were actually a direct lender. So we weren't an investment bank, but we were actually the person making the loan to all these small and mid-sized businesses, about 5,000 around the country. And the, the theory of those, both those businesses were that big banks basically ignored small to mid-sized businesses mm -hmm. and they created a huge opportunity. So nothing in those businesses specifically related to the proposal around international tax reform and infrastructure because we didn't actually provide infrastructure financing in either of those businesses, nor did we deal, nor did we have international operations. They were all domestic operations. But obviously, running those businesses, starting those businesses, building them up, taking them public, I mean, 
My second business, when I left it, had a $15 billion balance sheet. You know, you started the first business when you were in your young 20s. Uh, I think you and two friends purchased uh, a business for about ten grand yeah, or so. Fifteen, yeah. How did you get the initial capital in order to start making loans and build up a portfolio? So, so it, it, there was kind of an iteration before healthcare financial. So, what happened? Myself and, and some law school classmates, mm-hmm. we wanted to get into business. We're practicing law, and um, one of them and I purchased a small home healthcare company mm-hmm. that was for sale in the Washington Post for fifteen thousand dollars. And what it did is provide nurses into people's homes. Mm-hmm. And it was a very small business, mm-hmm. uh, and it was it was um, not doing well. Mm-hmm. And so we bought it, mm-hmm. and we ran it for a couple of years, and we sold it, made a little bit of money. And uh, so so the first business was actually running a home health care company. But during running that business, which we ran it for three years before we sold it, um, we had a hard time financing our business. We couldn't get a bank to give us a loan. Mm. And we worked with a specialty finance company in Dallas that actually lent us money that was focused on lending to small healthcare companies. And we became good friends with the owner of that business. Uh, he was a retired lawyer, actually. He was much older than us. He had been the managing partner of a big law firm in Dallas. <clears throat> and uh, when we sold the business, we said, this is a real good opportunity because a lot of companies like ours, banks are ignoring. Mm-hmm. And we're providing a very valuable service and we need bank loans. And uh, so we said we're, we, we, we said we're going to start the same kind of business. And we went with him. We said he was kind of retiring. We said, why don't we give you a little piece of our business and you kind of teach us the business mm-hmm. and then we'll start the company. And that was Healthcare Financial. Interesting. And, so, so, and I raised money from investors, you know, pitched them on the idea. We had, I had a little bit of a track record because we had bought this small home healthcare company, turned it around. We had actually used this specific service. So the investors who invested in Healthcare Financial when I started it, I think their view was, hey, the, the, these guys understand the market opportunity because they were in it, and they understand the product because they used it. Now, they've never run this business, per se. So that was the, the leap of faith they mm-hmm, took, mm-hmm. but that's how I got into it. Interesting. So you've had quite a varied career, yeah. uh, and something that is often more typical of Republican candidates and Democratic candidates is you've been very successful in business, and you've leveraged that into your um, campaign, yes. both for Congress and then for president. Um, of course, uh, you would think that, uh, so your district, uh, the 6th Congressional District, is very moderate. Um, so you present yourself as a moderate uh, Democrat because you need to appeal to Republicans as well. It's been noted in the news, however, that the, um, and as you've mentioned earlier, that the national kind of sentiment is towards towards the polar uh, extremes of partisanship and that more of a Bernie Sanders extremely liberal or a uh, very uh, um, very austere sort of uh, less government in theory uh, Republican Party is something that people are more strongly uh, in favor of and that perhaps a moderate is is not necessarily what many voters in America want even if perhaps you think it is what they need. How do you see yourself as succeeding uh, in the face of uh, of, of all this hyper-partisanship in America? So, uh, I don't actually view myself as a moderate. Mm-hmm. I, I do view myself, however, as a different kind of Democrat. Mm-hmm. And the reason is, is um, and I have nothing against moderates, and I have nothing against liberals, I have nothing against progressives, and, um, you know, Jamie Raskin, who I share Montgomery County with, has become one of my closest friends in the Congress, um, and he obviously is viewed as a progressive champion. And he said something to me interesting, which I thought was a good summary. He said... Uh, he said, John, your instincts are progressive, uh, but you seek kind of 
you know, practical and market-based solutions to make them happen. And I think that's a pretty good way, because if you think about the issues I've led on, increasing our investment in infrastructure, I have a bill that makes pre-K kind of a right across this country. I have the lead carbon tax bill in the Congress, mm-hmm. right, pr- putting a price on carbon. Mm-hmm. These are progressive causes at their core mm-hmm. on social issues. You know, I'm pro-choice. I'm obviously supportive of, of marriage equality. Um, you know, so on, on the key kind of goals of the progressive movement in this country right now, I think I line up beautifully with it. The difference is because I have spent my career in the private sector, um, I believe in the power of the private economy. I think that uh, the private economy of the United States has been an amazing kind of innovation machine and has not only kind of changed the trajectory of this country as compared to any other country in the world, but it has made us more prosperous, has made us safer. It largely employs the overwhelming majority of people in this country. It has allowed this country to be the leader in innovation. And, uh, you know, so I think about a concept of where the government sector and the private sector work more closely together as opposed to being at odds with each other. I think it's a very big mistake for the Democratic Party to present itself as, quote, anti-business. It should be saying, which I do, that we want to make capitalism more just and inclusive. But the key there is we don't want to replace capitalism with anything else. At least I don't. There's no better form of an economic model than capitalism. But I do think it should be more just and inclusive. And I think a lot of uh, the most well-regarded businesses in this country are already moving in that direction. They're thinking about kind of multiple bottom lines. Their, Their real bottom line, which is their earnings, but they're also thinking about the impact they have on their communities and society. And I think government should be encouraging that trend and putting in place policies that encourage those trends. And so that's where I'm, I think, very different than people in the party. Now, John, as we approach the end of this podcast episode, a final two-part question. Sure. Um, so I'd like to ask you about your motivations and your legacy. And let me frame it within this context. You've once uh, been quoted as saying that the time when uh, your daughter, who is a journalist for Yahoo News, interviewed you at the Democratic National Convention was perhaps one of your proudest moments yes. uh, in your life. And, and that's you know within the context of you having been someone with two IPOs on Wall Street. I'd like to ask you why you're motivated to do public service and what you hope will be the legacy uh, at the end of your career of all of your efforts to advance the public interest. So I, I like the way you asked the question because you mentioned my family, and the family's the most important thing to me. I have four daughters. I'm very proud of them. And, and uh, you know, I think I've been very blessed and fortunate. I mean, I grew up in a blue-collar family. My parents didn't go to college. I had this good business career, and now I've had the privilege of serving. And so I, I kind of believe we're put here for reasons, and I think, you know, I've got a set of skills that I think are important to the public debate, to public interest, and serving the common good of the country. So, you know, I'd like my family, my daughters, to be proud of what I've done to think that I've made a, a disproportionate contribution. And, uh, you know, when I first ran for office, you know, I, I, my, I, I used to say to people, because we're Catholic, and uh, our faith is important to, to us, I used to say, you know, one day I hope to see St. Peter. You know, in, in the Catholic religion, St. Peter stands there at the gate, and he kind of decides whether you go in or out. And I'd like to tell him something about me other than my business career, right? I'd like to be able to say, you know, this is actually what I did with my life. And it not be that I took two companies public, right? I think I'm incredibly proud of that. And it was an amazing experience that I helped a lot of people and created a lot of jobs and all that stuff. But I'd like this final chapter to be kind of 
as I like to say, make a, a disproportionate difference in uh, the lives of citizens around this country. That has been Congressman John Delaney, a Democratic candidate for President of the United States and a businessman who speaks about create, making capitalism more just and inclusive. And with his progressive instincts and his market-based practical approach to political solutions, uh, John seeks to advance public interest. John, I'd like to thank you for joining us today. It's great to be here with you, Jordan. Thank you for having me. This has been another episode of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. I'll remind you to subscribe on publicinterestpodcast.com, iTunes, or your favorite podcast listening platform. And please join the conversation by calling 240-630-0380 or emailing engage at publicinterestpodcast.com. Thanks for listening.